Let me say a prayer real quick, and we're going to jump right into the message. Uh, we're going to be in Philippians <clears throat> chapter 4. So if you've got a Bible with you, an electronic version, or a, a real, uh, or not a real version, but a, or the, kind, the kind I grew up on with pages in it, uh, go ahead and find Philippians chapter 4, and uh, we're going to be starting in verse 1 in just a second. Uh, but let me pray for us first. Father God, you have provided a way for us to be in a relationship with you. We have done things to break that relationship. We have sinned and, and we do things uh, on a regular basis that, that would cause us to be separated from you. But because of your goodness, because of your grace, because of your mercy, you have given us your only son. And he died on a cross for us. And because of that, now we can be united with you. We can have a relationship with you that is closer than any relationship we have with any other person on this earth. And I pray today that as we learn more about that relationship, we learn more about who you are and what you would have us to be, that we would walk away from here different, not because the band was great, not because me as a speaker did anything, but because of your spirit changes people's lives. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, Philippians chapter 4. We've been in Philippians for <clears throat> several weeks now. We started back in October, and, and uh, we're kind of winding down now. This is the last chapter of Philippians, and we're going to be in this for a few more weeks here until uh, we get finished. But just to remind you of what we're talking about, this is a, a letter that was written by the Apostle Paul. He was, he was probably the, the most influential individual other than Jesus uh, at the beginning of the, of the days of the church, way back in the New Testament times. And Paul started churches all over the area, and, and at this time, Paul has been put in prison. And he's in prison for, for teaching people about the gospel, teaching people about Jesus, which at that time was seen as a threat by the Roman government, and so they have put Paul in prison. And so what we're reading is a letter that he's written to this church in a place called Philippi that he, he founded this church, he started it, and uh, he's written a letter from prison to this church. And so, so we're reading Paul's mail is what we're doing here as we... As we continue, you know, back in 2004 now, we started this church, so it's been 10 years. Uh, we had our first public worship service right here at Greer High School in March of 2005, so we're about a month and a half away from celebrating 10 years of meeting together to worship in this, in this space right here. And we started this church back in 2004 because we had a belief and a, and, a, and a drive because we felt like that, that people uh, were walking around and they were in chains. They were spiritually chained up. And, and we wanted to, to help people discover true freedom that only comes from Jesus Christ. And, and that, that was our, our mission, and that's still our mission today, to help people discover true freedom that only comes from Jesus Christ because we believe that people will do lots of different things in search of true freedom. They will try to find freedom through relationships or through achievement or through a job or through money or through addictions, uh, through all kinds of different things. But what they're really searching for is they're really searching to be set free from their sin, to be set free in Jesus. And that only can happen through Him. And so we started this church to do that, and, and, and that's been our driving force from day one, and, and one of the things we've talked about all the time is that it's a shared job. It's not just my job 
to, to help people discover true freedom that only comes from Jesus Christ. It's not just Donnie's job. It's not just our elders' job. It's not just the rest of our staff. It's not their job. It's, it's not our greeting team's job. It's, it's all of our job together to help people discover true freedom that is only found in Jesus Christ. And so that's the thing we try to do. And, and so we walk out of here and we talk about the fact that, that we need to talk about Jesus, that we need to, to tell people our story if, you, if you've come to know Jesus as your Savior, you have a Jesus story. And we, one of the things we say is we need, we need to go out and we need to tell our story to our people. There's people already in your life that need Jesus, and you need to tell them your Jesus story. And so that's what we say we're going to do, and we, we try to do that as a group. But I want you to understand something today, that even if you walk out of here, and even if you refuse to say a word about Jesus, you refuse to say anything about this place, if people know you go to this church, and if people know that you claim to be a follower of Jesus, they are getting an image and they are getting a witness about who Jesus is by watching your life and by watching my life. Because here's what we do, and all of us do this. We observe people... And we make judgments about who they are based on what we see. And even if we've only had one interaction with them, we make a, we make a judgment. I'll give you a, a personal example. And as I give you this example, and the, some of the men, men, I, I hope you don't lose respect for me just as a man when I tell you the first sentence of what I'm about to say. But last Friday, I went to Hobby Lobby. Now, I'm sorry, men, that it's... Uh, Afterwards, I ate some beef jerky, so it kind of balanced it out. But, but I went to Hobby Lobby. I did not go by myself. I went with my wife, so hopefully that makes it a little bit better. And so we're in Hobby Lobby, and, and she was going to look at Hobby Lobby-type things, and I'm there, and I said, I said, if you don't need my help, I'm going to go to the model section where they have the model airplanes and stuff because that's like the manliest part of Hobby Lobby. So I wanted to go hang out there for a while. And so I'm there, and I'm looking at all these models and stuff, and and, uh, and down at the end of the row there, they have um, kits for Pinewood Derby cars. How I many? Anybody make Pinewood Derby cars when you were a kid, if you were in Boy Scouts or something? I remember doing that. And, and, uh, and so they had the kits, and there was a man there with his little son. And this little boy, he was probably about six years old. And, it, and uh, you know, this guy, he was, he was being a good dad, and he was saying, okay, what we're going to do, we're going to get this. And he's telling them all. He said, we'll go down here, we'll get some paint, and you can paint it. And then he said, and then look, these are stickers. We can put these stickers on there. And, and he's telling them all about this stuff. And so I'm not trying to eavesdrop, but it's just me and them on the aisle so I can hear everything they're saying. And, well, then all of a sudden this woman comes up who obviously is the husband, I mean the wife of this man and the mother of this boy. And she walks up, and she starts saying some things. And she says, now, what are you going to do to, you know, to her husband, not to the boy? What are you going to do with this? And he's like, well, we're going to, you know, he's trying to explain it to her. She said, how are you going to put this part on? And he said, well, we're going we're gonna to drill holes in it. And she said, you can't drill holes in that. And he said, yes, yes, we can. She said, no, you can't. The wood will split. He said, I've got little tiny, they make small drill bits. And she's just being like, I and I don't understand what her deal was, but she's just being just kind of antagonistic to this guy. And here I am. And immediately, I'm observing this, so what do I do? I make a judgment immediately about that woman. And in fact, and I, and I told Sherry, we got in the car, I said, now, you know that I, I try to, I believe that men should speak lovingly to their wives and all that kind of stuff. I said, but if that moment, if that guy had looked at her and said, you need to shut up because you don't know what you're talking about, I would have said, good job, fella. You, you got that one right. 
But, and, and listen, and I don't know what her deal was. I don't know if she just, if coming into Hobby Lobby puts her on edge because there's so many crafts and she feels overwhelmed. I don't know what it was. But, but I made a judgment about this woman based on one interaction. That might not be the kind of woman she is at all. She might be the sweetest, most caring, most loving person, and she just was having a bad day. But I looked at her and I thought, she's a terrible wife and a terrible mother, just based on that one thing. And here, the reality is, is that people do the same thing to us, and they do the same thing to this church. They will have an, an interaction with us. They will have, uh, you know, a time where they watch us do something, and they will immediately begin to think, especially if they're not a believer, they will begin, immediately begin to think, well, that's the way Christians are. That's the way believers are. That's the way people at Freedom Fellowship are because of this. And it might not be the way we are at all. It might just be we had one bad moment. And Paul, in the, in the passage of Scripture we're going to talk about today, Philippians 4, 1 through 7, he talks about a couple things that I think are really important. They're important for us, but I think they're also important about how we're going to live as a church and what kind of message we're going to give our community. So follow along with me while I read Philippians 4, 1 through 7. I'm going to read through the whole thing, and then we'll talk about it. Paul says this. Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. I entreat Euodia and I entreat Syntyche, those are awesome names, aren't they, to agree in the Lord. Yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. So Paul begins this passage right here in verse 1, and, and this is kind of starting a long conclusion of the whole letter to Philippians. And he starts off with, therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for. And one of the things I've been telling you since we started this study of, of Philippians is that this is a church that was very special to Paul. And you see that in his language here when he says, I love you and I long for you. In other words, I love you and I like you. I love you and I want to hang out with you because, you know, you've got some people in your life, you love them, but you want to love them from a distance like of about a thousand miles because you don't really want to be with them. I know we've all got people like that. But Paul is saying here, listen, I love you and I wish I wasn't in prison so we could be together. So I could be there. We could talk about the Lord together. We could experience worship together. We could just experience doing life together. So he loves them and he longs for them and he says he wants them to stand firm. One of the things that, that you see in the book of Philippians but that you also see throughout the New Testament, especially in the writings of Paul, is that the early church, it was not set up to operate like a business. It was not set up to operate like some kind of organization. The early church was a community. It was a community. And, and today, we are supposed to, still as churches today, we are supposed to operate as a community. In fact, the church should be the best example that you can find on planet Earth of what a community looks like, of what a healthy community is. We should be the examples of that as a church. And so when Paul continues in, in, in chapter 4 here, 
he, he immediately gets into a situation that we're going to talk about, but, but I think there's, a, there's an issue that he's wanting to, to emphasize to the church that we need to hear today. And if we are going to be a community, if we are going to do community and do church the way Jesus wants us to, we need to live in unity. We need to live in unity. Look what he says there in verses 2 and 3. I entreat Euodia... And I entreat Syntyche. By the way, let me just be, uh, confess one other thing to you. I had no idea how to pronounce Syntyche, so I had to call in the big guns. I called my friend, or I had, actually had Grace help me. We called uh, Dr. Horn, who's Greek and Old Testament, I mean Greek and Hebrew professor up at North Greenville, and said, hey, how do we pronounce this? Because I think it's like Syntyche or something. And he said it's Syntyche. So I know it's right. So if you got a problem, argue with Dr. Horn. All right. He says, I entreat Euodia, and I entreat Syntyche, to agree in the Lord. Yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. So we, we've got this letter here, and, and Paul is, is saying that there's a problem between two women in the church. Now, we don't have a whole lot of details about this problem. But there are some things that we can figure out from reading this letter. Here's one thing we can figure out is that the problem evidently was serious enough that the people of the church thought they needed to write to Paul and ask him his opinion of it. Because remember, Paul's in prison. He doesn't know what's going on with Euodia or Syntyche or any other women or men in the church unless he gets some information. And so it was serious enough that these folks said, you know what, we need to ask Paul's advice on this because these two women won't stop arguing and we need, we need to get, get some help with this. And the other thing that we can tell by, uh, by looking at this is that it was not about doctrine. Now, what is doctrine? Doctrine is about the correct belief about who Jesus is, the correct belief about what the Bible teaches. This was not a doctrinal issue. Now, here's how I know that. There are plenty of other letters in the New Testament that Paul wrote where he addresses doctrinal issues, and he says, the matter that you wrote me concerning this, here is what you need to know. In the matter that you wrote me concerning this, you need to know this. In this situation, he doesn't say to them, hey, Euodia is wrong about the resurrection because of this, or Syntyche is wrong about circumcision because of this. It's not a doctrinal issue. Because if it was a doctrinal issue, Paul would have immediately corrected it. But instead of correcting it, he's just saying, you need to help these people get this situation under control. So it wasn't a doctrinal issue. So what that tells me is it was about something that really was not all that important in the big scheme of things. So why would Paul, who is the smartest theologian who's ever lived, who knows more about what Jesus, how Jesus wants us to live than anyone who's come before or since, why would he take his time in writing this letter to get involved in a dispute between two women in the church? Because here, here's why I think. Because Paul understood something that was true then that's true today. I told you that the church was a community. Here's what Paul understood. Community is fragile. Community is fragile. And now this next sentence I'm not going to say, that I'm going to say is not going to be on the screen, but if you're taking notes, I want you to write it down. If you're taking notes, write this down. True community is difficult to build, but it's easily destroyed. True community is difficult to build, but it's easily destroyed. Community is fragile. See, this was a, non, this was a disagreement about non-essentials, things that didn't really matter. And, and the thing about non-essential 
disagreements is that they're, they're not essential, they're not essential, so they're not big, they're small, but they're small, but they can cause big problems. It's kind of like a, kind of like a virus. Disagreements over non-essentials is, is like a virus in a church. How, none, how many of you have ever seen a virus? None of you, unless you've looked it through a microscope. Why? Because they're too small for us to see. How many of you have ever seen and experienced the results of a virus? Yeah. And you know that they can destroy a household, right? I, right now, I talked to someone on the way in that said that they are related to someone who has a virus, and immediately I wanted to wash my hands just because I don't want to get a virus that bad. That We know what it will do. Arguments and disagreements over non-essential things in the church are like a virus. They're very small, they're very insignificant, but next thing you know, they have the ability to to split churches wide open. They have the ability to destroy community that was so hard to build. If I I wanted to, nobody would want to hear this, but if I wanted to, I could put a microphone up here and I'd say, okay, any of you who've been involved in a church where arguments over non-essentials cause problems in the church. Just come up here and tell the story. And almost all of you who've been in church your whole life could tell a story like that. You could tell stories about arguments over carpet. And you know, I mean, people always joke about, you know, that church split over the color of the carpet. You know why people tell jokes about that? Because that stuff has really happened before. And, you know, you could, and, and I don't know what this situation was. Who knows? I, this is what I imagine it was. They had just built their first building, okay? The church at Philippi had just built their first building. And they had a children's hall, and, and people said, you know what this children's hall need? You know what needs to be on this wall and this children's hall more than anything else that will really bring people to Jesus? A Noah's Ark mural. That's what we need on this wall right here. And so Euodia and Syntyche said, Syntyche said, well, you know, I'd kind of do some painting on the side and, and I'd like to do that. But then Euodia said, well, my granddaughter, she just graduated with an art degree from I'm never going to get a job university. And so we need to let her, we need to let her come in here and let her paint this mural on the wall, right? And so next thing you know, you've got an argument between two women over something that doesn't matter. And so, all right, that, no big deal, right? Well, then they decide to go with Euodia's granddaughter because she has this degree and they're feeling sorry for her. And Syntyche gets her feelings hurt. And next thing you know, Syntyche's friends all start gathering around. And now they're mad at the pastor because the pastor didn't take Syntyche's side. And Euodia and her friends are saying, well, you know, my granddaughter's much more talented than you are. I've seen some of your paintings and they're terrible. And next thing you know, you've got this argument going on when a church is supposed to be focusing on telling people the gospel, making disciples, and people are upset about a Noah's Ark mural. Now, obviously, that's not what happened. We don't know what happened here. But I'm telling you a story that some of you have lived out in a church you've been in before. Because disagreements over non-essentials can destroy a church. And so Paul is telling us we need to be sure that we're doing everything we can to live in unity. And so look what he tells them to do there. He, he tells them to do a few things. The first thing he tells them to do there is he says, he, well, he addresses the women personally in this letter. In verse 2, he says, I entreat Euodia and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Entreat, that's a word that's, that's almost begging where he's saying, please, ladies, please look past this non-essential argument and think about the big picture. Agree in the Lord. And then the next thing he says is, he, he, after he addresses the women personally, then he addresses the church or someone in the church because he says, yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel together with Clement, whose names are in the book of life. So he's saying, somebody needs to get involved in this. Somebody needs to help these women. 
to try to agree in the Lord. And I'm sure whoever was reading the letter thought, I ain't getting in between those two women. But Paul was saying here, if we live in community, part of living in community is that we hold each other accountable. And so if we're going to live in community, that means that we enjoy the community when things are good, but that also means that when two people, women or men, get in an argument over non-essentials, that we also continue to be in the community and we try to get involved and to do something about that. You don't take up somebody's side, one or the other, but what you do is you come together and say, can we come to some kind of an agreement here? This is going to hurt the church over something that doesn't matter. It's not doctrinal. It's not about the mission and vision of the church. It's not even about the strategy of the church. It's about something ridiculous. Let's try to come together here. And then the last thing that Paul says that I think this is the most important of all of it. He tells them to remember what they have in common. Look at verse 3. He says, Help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers and whose names are in the book of life. He's saying, "Here's Ladies, both of you have been saved by Jesus. Both of you have had your sin forgiven. And not only have you been saved by Jesus, you have worked in this church. You've served side by side on Wednesday night with the students at Link. You, you've served them in, in the mornings at side by side, making coffee and, and handing out orange juice to the guests who come in and the guest services team. You've served side by side, helping set up the screens and the projectors and the, and the music stands and all that kind of stuff. He's saying to them, you've worked together in this church and now you're going to allow this non-essential disagreement get in your way. He said, remember what you have in common. Let's try to get past this thing. See, if, if we want to be a healthy community, we want to be a healthy church, we have to, when non-essential disagreements come up, we have to deal with them in that way. Because let me tell you what I know about church. People are going to get into disagreements. And here's what else I know. People are going to get into disagreements over things that are stupid. That's just who we are as human beings. We all have our little things that we think are really important and we're going to get our feelings hurt and we're going to want to take our ball and go home and all that kind of stuff. But if we want to be a healthy community, we have to agree that, okay, when those times come, unless we're disagreeing over the interpretation of Scripture or unless we're disagreeing over the mission and vision of the church, then everything else we can put aside and we say we can come together. We can, I can give a little bit, you can give a little bit, and we can come together to an agreement of how this thing is supposed to be. Instead of digging in our heels, refusing to say I'm sorry, refusing to to give in at all, but to try to think about the overall health of the church. Paul is saying we've got to do that if we want our witness to those outside the church to be what it should be. All right, the second thing that Paul says in here that's so important is that we need to live in unity, and the second thing is live in peace. Look at verses 4 through 7. I'm going to read those again. Paul says this, Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. I told you at the beginning of the message, reminded you, that Paul was in prison when he wrote this. And this, 
this, this, is, this has just kind of stayed with me through the whole time we've been studying Philippians. It's just remembering that Paul was in prison. So when Paul writes, rejoice in the Lord always, again I will say rejoice, he wasn't sitting on a yacht in the middle of the Caribbean counting his money. He was in prison. And so when he says rejoice in the Lord always, he's, he's saying, me, I'm in prison, I'm rejoicing in the Lord, even though I don't know when the next beating is coming. Even though I don't know if they're going to give me anything to eat tonight before I go to sleep. Even though they could come in here at any moment and pull me out of here and execute me for what I've done. But he says rejoice in the Lord always. And in fact, it's so important that he says, I'm going to say it twice. Rejoice in the Lord always and I'll say it one more time in case you didn't hear me the first time. Rejoice. And so if we want to live in peace in the midst of times like Paul was going through, times that are way less than peaceful, or if we want to live in peace during times when we think everything is going great, the first thing we've got to do is we need to rejoice. We need to rejoice all the time, whatever the situation is. Now, here's, here's the important thing, and this is something that for years I read this scripture, and it just went over my head for some reason because it takes me a long time to get things. But look at what Paul says there in verse 4. I'm, I'm going to stop, and I'm going to let you finish the next two words. Rejoice in what? Say it again, rejoice in, rejoice in the Lord. Does he say rejoice in your situation? Does he say rejoice in being in prison? Does he say rejoice in cancer? Rejoice in divorce? Rejoice in a new job? That would be something that would be good. Rejoice in a raise? No, he says rejoice in the Lord. And again, I will say rejoice. That is so important if we are going to live in peace. Because here's the thing. All those other things I mentioned, being in jail, getting a new job, having cancer, um, you know, uh, going through a divorce, all of those things, those are circumstances. And, and what we know about our circumstances is, whether they're great or whether they're terrible, our circumstances will not last forever. Our circumstances are going to change. Whatever is going on in your life right now, it's not going to be exactly the same way that it is 10 years from now as it is today. Things are going to change. But you know who is going to be exactly the same 10 years from now as he is today? The Lord. So when Paul says rejoice in the Lord, he's saying rejoice in the thing that's certain. Rejoice in the person who's not going to change. Rejoice in the one who loves you no matter if you've messed your life up or if you've made a lot of good choices. Rejoice in the Lord always, again, I will say, rejoice. We, if we can focus on Him, it will change our perspective. The second thing he says in there, if we want to live in peace, he says, rejoice in the Lord. And then the next thing he says in verse 6, he says, do not be anxious about anything. He says, don't worry. Don't worry. Now, did Paul come up with this on his own? Was this Paul's idea? Now, there was a, a guy that, that Paul was following named Jesus, and he said that in Matthew 6. Listen to this. Jesus said, therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body. Teenagers, listen to this next part, what you will put on. Give your parents a break when you go shopping. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? And then verse 27, and which of you by being anxious can add a single hour to his span of life? 
So Paul says, rejoice in the Lord. No matter what your situation is, rejoice in the Lord. And then when it comes to your situation, which you want to worry about, he says, don't be anxious about it. Don't worry about it. Now, here's the thing about that. That's easier said than done, isn't it? Somebody at our life group Wednesday night, I love this. They said that, uh, that if they could ever get to the point where they were not anxious about anything, they'd have to find a new hobby. And I thought that was great because a lot of us are like that. It's like worrying is kind of our thing. It's what we do. You know, a lot of, you, know you, you go fishing, you, know, you play golf, you scrapbook. I worry. That's, that's kind of my deal. And, uh, and, but Paul says here, do not be anxious about anything. And so it's almost like you know, we think we can just cut it off. But, but you can't take that out of what he says next. He says, don't worry. And then the next thing he says is, he says to pray. Look at this. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, thanksgiving let your requests be made known to God. See, when, you, when I tell you not to worry about something, the minute I tell you, don't worry about this, well, then what have I done? It's in your mind, right? Like right now, I mean, how can you not think of something if someone says, if I say to you right now, okay, as a group right now, none of us should think about tomatoes. Do not think about tomatoes. Whatever you do, I don't want anyone to think about tomatoes. Now, as I'm saying that, there's already one of you in here that you've already imagined white bread, Duke's mayonnaise, you know, a big old slab of tomato with a little salt and pepper on it. Your mouth's watering right now just thinking about it. But I said, don't think about tomatoes. But the more I said it, the more it came into your brain, right? And so when we think about our life and we've got something going on, and the more we say, okay, I'm not going to worry about this today. I'm not going to worry about this today. Well, it's on your mind all day because you're talking about how you're not going to worry about it. So Paul says instead of just don't be anxious, he said, don't be anxious, but let me tell you what to do. Take that thing that you're anxious about and pray about it. Everything that's going on in your life. I love that he says in everything. So in other words, that thing that, that to you seems, seems so important, but you're thinking, well, God doesn't really care about this. No, Paul says pray about it. Pray about everything. And take that thing to him that, that's just tearing you up. And so replace your worry with prayer. And then what will happen if we can begin to do that? We, if we can begin to pray about those things that just are, are tearing us up, it says this in verse 7, and this is, this is where the, the key to living in peace comes. If we'll do that, he says, and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. The only way we can live in peace is if we look at our circumstances, the good and the bad, we don't focus on them, but we rejoice in the Lord who is constant through those circumstances. We take those things that we're worrying about and we take them to Him in prayer. And then it says that if we do that, we will begin to experience something that is a peace that comes from God. And it says that it's a peace that doesn't make any sense. It says it surpasses all understanding because in the middle of of cancer, in the middle of divorce, in the middle of bankruptcy, in the middle of being fired, in the middle of your kids going off the rails, in the middle of failing out of school, in the middle of all of that stuff, some of which you caused, some of which was done to you, it doesn't matter, in the middle of all that, if we will begin to live like this and pray about those things, that even during those times you can have a peace. It doesn't mean you don't care, it just means that I care about this deeply, but I know that God has me. I know that He's going to hold me through this. 
even though I'm heartbroken over what's going on in my life, even though some mornings I don't know if I can get out of bed, I have a peace that when I do get out of bed today, God has this day. He has this day taken care of. And I have to trust Him and get my eyes off of myself. See, if we can, if we can live in unity with one another, and if we can live in peace with our circumstances, we're, we're going to have a better life. But there's way more to it than that. I'm not up here talking to you just so that you can, you know, have your best life now or whatever. It's not what this is about. I want you to imagine with me, what would the impact be of every single person who is here today? Tomorrow morning, we're going to scatter to places all over this county, to different places across this state when we go to work and we go to school. I want you to imagine if all of us left out of here tomorrow morning and we were all living in peace, we were all living in unity, and that showed up at the places we work, it showed up at the places we go to school, what kind of impact would that have on our communities, on our state? So this isn't, living in peace and living in unity is not just so that we can feel better about ourselves and sleep better at night. That's just a byproduct. The real impact comes in what it does to people outside this church. What is the message that it gives to this community? I would love for the people of this community, when they think about Freedom Fellowship, when they, when they talk about this church, that they would say, I don't know what goes on in there, but those people, I know this, they love each other. And that no matter what goes on in their life, they, they trust Something, I don't even know if it's God because they don't know God, but they trust something is going to be better about it because I've seen them going through some difficult stuff and somehow they're able to continue on with life. I would love it if the people of this community would say that. That they would see unity in us. They would see peace in us. There's one verse that that I skipped over on purpose a while ago. It's verse 5 of Philippians 4. Let me read it to you. It says this, Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Now, depending on the passage, the the interpretation of the Bible you've got, if you've got a NIV or some other other, uh, um, kinds of Bibles, it will say, instead of reasonableness there, it says gentleness. The reason there's a couple of different words there for that word is that there's a Greek word there that doesn't have a, a real direct translation in English. And so some people translate it reasonableness, some people translate it gentleness. But here's the overall image and idea of that word, is that it's talking about us being selfless, about putting the needs of others first. You know, that that really is the key to living in community. That's the key to living in a marriage, living in a household. And it's no different when it comes to living in a community of a church. That if we can let our selflessness, let our reasonableness, let our gentleness be known to all. That when we're dealing with things here that we understand, listen, I want what's best for you. And I'm willing willing to put off 
what I think is best and what I want right now in order to help you. That's the kind of love that will communicate outside these walls. When our people see us putting the needs of others first, if the people that we're friends with see us putting the needs of others first. I'm going to pray for us in just a second. If we live in unity, we live in peace, it's going to have an impact. And so if you're already a believer, I want you to, to pray about the impact that you can have where you, where you work and where you go to school. I also want you to think about, and I, I don't know what's going on in your life. Maybe you're not in unity with someone in this church body or someone in your family or someone that you work with and, and you've been digging in your heels and you need to go and make that situation right. You need to take the first step. And then maybe you're here today and you don't know Jesus, but you like what you've heard because you need some peace in your life. You need some unity in your life. And you know that you're not going to get it on your own. You can find out about that today as well. Our band's going to come and they're going to they're play. Donnie will be right over here. I'm right over there. Uh, you can come to either one of us to talk. I would love if you've got an issue, you can come down here and pray at the front. Um, you can pray sitting right there where you are, but maybe you need to, to make a public commitment that says, Jesus, I'm going to go down and I'm going to pray about this down here. I'm going to let people see this, not because I'm trying to show off, but because I want some folks to help hold me accountable for this later on. I need to live in unity. I need to live in peace. Let me pray for us. Father God, the words of the Bible are so clear to us in many different ways. When I read these words from Paul and I think about our church today and churches I've been a part of and churches in this community, I desire that, that we would be unified, that we would live the way we should with one another. And I desire that we would be a people that live in peace during times of prosperity and during times of difficulty. We know that our circumstances are going to change. They'll be different tomorrow, but we're so thankful that you won't be different. That the God who loves us today will love us the same tomorrow. There's nothing we can do to make you love us more or make you love us less. And so I pray that as we think about that today, we would trust you for that. We would give our lives completely to you and hold nothing back because only you have made a sacrifice for us so that we can live together forever in heaven. We ask these things in Jesus' name.